Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in the middle of this blissful period of endless blue skies, beautiful warmth in one of my all-time favourite Lakeland Valleys with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. Well, we're in Estelle. One of my favourite valleys, as well as your own. Oh. It's not uh, an all-comers dale. Most people who come to the Lake District go to Windermere or they go to Derwentwater. It's quite a struggle to get here. Hard lot rhinos, and it's a long way round. And very briefly on the skyline, among the many favourites, hard to fell. I think both you and I adore oh. that fell, don't we? Oh, it's a lovely summit. A Roman fort up the hill as well. Oh, magic. Yeah. And the valley has got two characters, this lower section with the road and woodlands, and then the wild mountain sanctuary above Brother Keld. It's an absolutely gorgeous valley. This is a podcast I've been wanting to record for about three years. So almost from the start, I read a book shortly after I moved up here by a gentleman called Ian Hall, and he had written about his time in this valley, 28 years he spent here with his wife, Jen, and with another couple, Jeff and Anne-Marie. And they lived together, these two couples, they raised their families here on one of the most significant farms in this part of the Western Lakes. Talk to us about the farm. Oh yes, Fisher Ground, which sits down close to Estelle Green, near the Outward Bound Centre. This book, Fisher Ground, Living the Dream, is about this dream of taking on a Lake District hill farm, about trying to make a success of it financially, of learning through the years what works, what doesn't work. And it's this great story of kind of human endeavour and the relationships of these four people who deeply care about each other. Uh, And we're really lucky to have Ian and Jen with us today to walk along the river. And, And you've got a route planned for us, Mark. Yeah, well, guided by the book, largely from the farm itself, uh, we went cross over a bridge and then head upstream on what probably was a Roman road from Ravenglass over Hardknot Pass and so on towards Ambleside, which links us to our last podcast, coincidentally. Yes. Uh, and uh, we go up to the Gerda Bridge and then back to St. Catherine's Church. So it's a, a linear walk, but a really enchanting one and full of stories that relate to Ian and Jen's life when they were here. Fabulous. Well, look, I can see them over there just in front of their old home for just over a quarter of a century. Let's go and meet Ian and Jen. On a gorgeous afternoon in early June, I'm standing in the cobbled yard of Fisher Ground. Fabulous setting. I'm behind the Georgian farmhouse, which is, I believe, 1795. It's quite a stately, nicely proportioned farmhouse, whitewashed, black surround to the windows. And behind it is Estelle Low Fell with the craggy edges. I can look back across the meadows to the south 
and I can see the fells rising above the woodlands. It's a gorgeous valley, and that's the very nature of Estelle. Green, it's got trees, it's got crags, it is quiet. To break the silence, I've got Jenny Hall. Could you give us a little bit of background of your family roots? Yes, I was born in Keswick. My father was the English teacher at Leithwaite School, the secondary modern school, but is now Keswick School. I went to Keswick School, where I met my husband, Ian. Uh, it was a place where, if it rained on a Wednesday, the girls all prayed for rain because you could dance. If the weather was fine, then you did sport. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, dancing with Ian, he said, oh, what do you want to do with your life? I said, oh, I, I've always wanted to marry a farmer. And he said, well, I'm a farmer. I said, oh, good. <laughs> and uh, it's just gone on from there. There's a quad vehicle propped up behind us. Ian Hall, can you give me a little bit of a feel for your roots as well? The relevant ones are from when I was 11, when my parents were tenants at Thornithwaite Farm up in the top end of Borrowdale. So I went there as an 11-year-old and loved the farming life and loved what we were doing there and fell in love with the whole idea of driving tractors and so on. So that was when I started Keswick School. Well, you're on the farm there, Ian, uh, in Thornithwaite, and you've met up with Jem. And there's a third person in this story we'd like to explore. And perhaps, Jen, you can introduce us to Anne-Marie. Well, Anne-Marie, yes, she was a French girl. She was only 12 when I met her. Um, the reason why I met her was a group of nuns had broken down in Keswick. Uh, somebody gave them refuge and they said, ooh, can you find us some people who would take in some French girls? So the lady asked my dad, being a teacher, said, would you like to have a French girl to say? And dad said, ooh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so Anne-Marie came and stayed with me and my family and... For the next ooh, four years, we were very close pen friends. I went across to France, she came across to us. And um, then she met my cousin Geoffrey, and they got married, and we bought houses next door to each other, and then decided to set up the farm together. When did the idea of actually acquiring a farm and working together come about? Well, I was teaching at the time, I was teaching at Whitehaven Grammar School and getting more and more disenchanted with teaching, I suppose would be the word. Jen had just had our second child and the district nurse still used to come round and um, see us, as she said, for a couple and a pea. And she told us that there was a farm gone bankrupt down in Eskdale and uh, we should go and have a look at it. So we thought, brilliant, let's do that. So we we tottled down here and uh, wandered through the yard that you've just been in and thought, oh, magic, but how could we possibly afford this? And obviously we couldn't. So the only way we could afford it was if Jeff and Anne-Marie would come in with us and sell both houses that we'd built and come in with us and share the place and the dream. So uh, for some strange reason, they said yes. How <laughs> fascinating. Um, Jen, now in the book, Ian describes how when you came here to Fisher Ground, you fell in love at the very instant. Can you describe that emotion? I'd always wanted to live on a farm and loved going up to Ian's parents' farm, which was Thornithwaite in Borrowdale. And it was just magic. It was hot. It was 1976, which was one of the hottest years. We had some sheep, we had collies, we had hens, we had pigs. What was not to like? It was just paradise. It was absolutely lovely. Uh, coincidentally, I was actually brought up just about eight miles away from here and I had been in Neskdale Valley with my parents, but I was only two, so I couldn't remember it terribly well. And it just felt like almost coming home. 
It is a magical place and the setting is glorious and um, and the nice thing about it is that the valley runs east-west so the sun is on it all the time. Borrowdale, where we are, we're at Thornywit, it's north-south and it doesn't get an awful lot of sun. It's probably it, why Borrowdale is so named actually, not just because of the hill fort on Castle Crag, it's because it is so shadowed and enclosed. Yeah. It's a defended place, a natural fortress. Yeah. That's what Borrowdale means. Yeah, fair enough, it, it certainly is. It, I mean, the other word's claustrophobic sometimes when, when the clouds are down and you can't see out at all, it, uh, it can be quite claustrophobic. But this was so open and just wonderful. I, of course, have given you a little bit of an introduction to this lovely, lovely setting, but Ian and Jen, this was your home for quite a long time, and so you, you can put personality to much of what we can see around us. Can you point out something here, Ian? Yeah, sure. Behind the house, the crag you can see there, we call it Stretcher Crag because it was where the Outward Bound School, um, which was next door, used to do their stretcher practice. And the Outward Bound School was, in a sense, the icing on the cake here because they were all the same age as us. It was like coming to college again, really. They were the same age, they had the same sort of age children and parties. And Jen got to know the ladies there very well, very quick. Well, Jen and Anne-Marie, both of them, got to know the, the ladies very well. So that was a, a real bonus because not only was it lovely countryside and lovely place to be, but there were a lot of people around of our age to our amazement, really. I wasn't expecting that. So that's Stretcher Crag. Um, down the valley, you've got the King George down there. That used to be called the Tatey Garth when I was a child and came up there with my parents. What was it called then? Tatey Garth, mm. um, because that's where there was a small field that you grew potatoes, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and actually, when we first came, it was a surprisingly, in the old days almost, there was a, there was a basket maker in the middle of Estill Green, and old John Porter was still alive then and lived on until he was 94. He'd been the postman and the cobbler, and uh, the hunt balls were still just about hanging on. Um, we went to two or three, but they were on, on the last legs. Everything seemed to be just slightly on the change, because there was no television in, in the valley in those days. It, it wouldn't reach here. So there were still whist drives in the village hall and things like that, but it was all... Coming to an end, it was the beginning of the new era, really, and we were part of that. Could you describe what a hunt ball was? I remember them from my own youth, but what were they like here? In the time, there were tremendous merry neats and went drinking and, and dancing went on all night long and probably into the next day as well. Jen was a very keen dancer. Knees and joints permitting, yes, I do like dancing. Oh. And it was lovely at the Outward Bound School because you, you could dance. And, in fact, Anne-Marie's eldest daughter... Elizabeth got married at the Outward Bound School and all the French cousins and family came over. Couldn't believe us English people could dance as well as we could. <laughs> it was cosmopolitan, you know, there's a lot of French people came to stay and came to visit and they loved it as much as we did, I think, and they're still coming back, so says it all, doesn't it? Well, we got this lovely picture of the four of you and settled into this majestic setting. We ought to stroll a little bit further to look around the farm a little bit before we get on towards the river and beyond. Well, we passed the lovely little duck pond that you created and the three chalets, which are probably 40 years old, I would imagine, but look very substantial. And we're close by La Ratti, the little railway, which uh, attracts people to this valley in considerable numbers. 
Ian, what was it about farming that really spurred you to come to Fisherground? I guess I'd always wanted to be a farmer ever since we moved to Thornithwaite. Um, I was a bright lad and I actually got a maths degree at Oxford, so I should have been doing that sort of thing. And I was teaching for seven years, but my heart was always in farming. I didn't get much of a buzz out of being a maths teacher. I always wanted to farm and Jen always wanted to farm as well, as she's already said. I mean, as it was, we only got half a farm. We didn't get all the rest of the land. So it was always a small holding, to be honest. But that was probably a good thing because it meant eventually we developed the tourist side and uh, there it, oh, there's the railway. Um, that made a decent living for us eventually when we got it going. I have a feeling that actually what I really wanted to do was the construction side of farming. I loved building the things. I wasn't quite so good with animals. That was more Jen's department than mine. OK, well, I'll please be honest, Jen. Did you like Herdwick sheep or cattle? Yes, and I think uh, the Herdwick sheep loved me because I've got small hands, so in lambing time, Ian's got mighty mitts. <laughs> so I like lambing, and I do actually still miss lambing. It was quite unusual for two couples to be raising your kids in harmony, and that, of course, meant that people in the valley perhaps thought you were some kind of commune and they weren't quite certain about what you were about. Well, that's certainly true. I had... One daughter, Catherine, then Anne-Marie had her Elizabeth, then I had Sally, and then Anne-Marie had Claire, and then a little while later she had Philip. So there were plenty of chances for babysitting. We could go where we liked and leave the kids in their own places. They lived upstairs, we lived downstairs. We only ate together communally when there was a sort of party going on, which was quite often with the outward bound nearby. It was a very, very happy place. It was, it was lovely. And the kids had a lovely time as well. Dens up at the back there and tree houses and friends brought their friends' children round. And how the children survived, I've no idea, because they used to jump on the bale and off the bale and climb up onto the stacks of uh, bales when we put the trailer in, stacked high with bales, and they'd be sitting up on the top yelling, screaming. It was great. <laughs> in the early days, there was not much money on this farm, basically because you didn't have the full extent of the farm in your possession. So could we talk about that pursuit that you had tried growing potatoes? Oh, I'd rather not, but if you insist. Um, 1976 being such a hot year was very hard on potatoes and the price shot up enormously. So we thought, well, next year we'll grow our own. There's a little back field behind the farmhouse. We would cut about an acre of it, try and make potatoes in that. We invested in a thing called a hater potato vater, which was supposed to do the whole job for us, really. Um, pulled along behind the tractor. It was basically a rotavator, and it rotavated to the best of its ability, but it was very stony ground, and every now and again, the stones would fly off in all directions. Bits of the potato vater would fly off in all directions. Jeff would be welding them back on again. Eventually, we got it all turned over-ish and stitched up-ish, and we planted the potatoes and um, hoped for the best. But when we came to taking them out, the potato vater was absolutely useless, so we ended up lifting them all by fork, and I doubt we got much more out of it than we actually put into it. And that was really the tale of all those early farming experiences. You put an awful lot of effort in and end up with very little profit. Did you try pigs? We did try pigs for the very good reason that we had loads of buildings but very little land, so we thought, well, pigs are an inside job, they should be OK. So we converted all sorts of buildings for the pigs and we bought 18 pig gilts from Wobbethwaite, which is the famous Cumberland oh, yeah. Sausage Place, and got started. 
And that enterprise went on for seven years, I think, in total. But once again, it never made a penny. It was hard work, it was smelly, it was dirty, took a lot of time, and it really ultimately never made a penny. Could you uh, give us some feel for your experience of going to Broughton in Furness, auction mart? I never liked auctioning. We'd set off from here with um, half a dozen sturks in the back of the trailer. Their cattle, I, by the way. Cat, their cattle, by the way. That I thought were reasonably well formed and, and should sell well. When they were in the pens, they looked about three quarters of the size they did when we were here. And by the time I came to be actually in the auction ring, showing them round, there seemed to be diminutive little things that nobody wanted. I couldn't understand how this happened, but it did. It's a man's world in an auction. I was the only woman there. I was the only woman with children there, certainly. And, of course, children were excited and shouting and saying, oh, look at that, look at that, what's that one, this one? Madam, please, will you remove those children? (laughs) (laughs) And that's auctioning for you. I never liked it. I, I always felt very much the underdog in an auction, Matt. Well, you've got this farm, you've got a growing family and you've got a campsite which was uh, taking off. Where did you find the energy? We were very young and at that stage you're full of energy. We were just in our late 20s, um, not even late 20s, mid-20s and you could work all day, dance all night and it was fine. Now I look back on it and I think, good grief, how did we do it all? I don't know if anybody will remember those demijohns where you, you made your own wine out of elderberries and there was plenty here and uh, I actually made some nettle wine which was revolting so maybe I got it all from alcohol I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's the answer they were expecting (laughs) well in tandem with your farming with all its uh, ups and downs largely downs I think you decided to develop a campsite which was a growth area in your activities I think we'll walk a little bit further and get near the site and get some view of how it emerged and how it evolved into something really special. Well, we've walked towards the campsite, which is just across the meadow from where we're actually standing. And you've talked, Ian, about the range of farming activities you've tried, but you had a caravan and... That revealed something special. Could you explain what it revealed? Yeah, that first year we tried five different enterprises. We had cattle, we had fattening sheep, we had um, the beginning of the pigs and two tourist things, an old caravan which we rented out weekly and people seemed to enjoy. And the very first day we came here virtually, we opened, in inverted commas, a campsite because it was such a hot summer, everybody was wanting to camp. We didn't have any loos or anything like that. We had an Elson in one of the old farm buildings and I was emptying that Elson about five times a day. And it was astonishingly primitive and yet everybody seemed to love it. By the end of the a couple of years, I'd come to the conclusion that, honestly speaking, on this place, tourists will pay us £5 an hour for our work. For the farm, we have to work about five hours to make a pound, I think. So it became obvious that really this place was for tourism rather than very intensive farming. Probably five years later, the National Park Authority asked us if we would actually become an official campsite, um, able to open all the summer long, Um, but obviously that would include a proper toilet block and all the facilities that went with it. So eight years, I think, after first starting, we had a proper toilet block with proper partitions 
and the whole place was much more officially a campsite with maybe 150 pitches that people could come to and doing very nicely for us indeed compared to the pigs, that's for sure. With success comes pressure. The campsite was always pressure because you had people who wanted to come with their families and get their families into bed by maybe half past nine at night and have a quiet night. And at the weekends in particular, you had people who came from fairly close by and wanted a party all night long. And trying to square that circle was hideous. I used to have to sleep up there, firstly in an old van, so that I could keep control of things, or try to keep control of things, and eventually in a little caravan that I put up there. And every weekend I spent the nights there patrolling and trying to keep control. It was very difficult. Jenny, you had this dream of starting a farm, but of course it had evolved. And were you compromising your original dream, you feel? To some extent, yes, I think for me, uh, uh, we were. I never liked the campsite and Ian got very stressed over it. Anne-Marie was very good with it. She put on the marigolds and did a lot of the cleaning and that sort of thing. And I didn't want to do the cleaning either. So, yes, my dream, if you like, was a bit compromised. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it wasn't making a living as a farm in any sense. And I think all the farms around were in the same boat but they were much bigger so they could still make a living ultimately we had to make a living nobody was going to bail us out and the only way of doing it was without a doubt tourism so we had the campsite and then we had three caravans that people would rent for a week and then that developed into the three lodges that we've seen here now and yes by then it was a tourist enterprise more than it was a farm. But you could still play with the farm and you still had the land. We still had the sheep that we worked on. Jen still had her hens. And there was still a feeling that people were coming to a farm and we were running a farm, even though, honestly, the farm wasn't contributing anything towards the expenses. But I don't think we sold our souls entirely. And I think, to be honest, that now, 40 years on, most farms are feeling the same pressure. They've nearly all got their shepherd's huts or their pods or their campsite, and it's the only way you can actually make the job work. One of your friends said that you were creating a great service for your visitors. Yeah, it was a point I hadn't really thought about, and when I did, it pleased me enormously, I must admit. He was saying, you don't understand what it's like for people who are living in towns and cities surrounded by concrete and everything else. They come here... And they get a load of freedom. You let them have campfires up on the campsite. You've built a, an adventure playground that the kids can zoom around on. It's not health and safety conscious like it is in a city. An awful lot of people are coming here and they're loving it and they're getting something to take away back to where they live. It's worthwhile what you're doing. It was nice to be told that, well, all right, you may have sold your soul from the farming point of view, but you are doing a lot of good from a lot of other people's point of view. So that was nice. I think it's about time we had a stroll towards the River Esk, an enchanting river, shaded by wonderful trees. We strolled across the meadow towards the lovely suspension footbridge over the Esk, but looking back, Ian, 
you were casually mentioning just now to me that uh, Estelle Lofell has got uh, some evidence of quarrying and mining, hematite mining. That's something everybody will associate with boot, but not here at the back of Fisher Ground. We were amazed to stumble across, and I really do mean stumble across, what is actually an inclined plane that goes up the fell from the Ratty up to the top of our intakes. And at the top there, there is um, what was an old mine, actually, not quarry. They were, they were underground, mm-hmm. quarrying out uh, iron ore from there and bringing it through and added to the top of this uh, inclined plane where it would come down on um, one bogey, which passed the other one halfway on a little platform that you can see, and bringing it all down to the Ratty for taking it down to Ravenglass. We have to remember, of course, that Ratty, for all its delight for the tourists today, actually was a mineral line, a working line. It's got a remarkable history. I don't know how it ever managed to keep going. By about 1960, it was almost defunct. The minerals had all stopped and the hematite had gone long before. The stone was no longer needed. It was too much transport to get it down there. And it was no use, really. It was saved by a preservation society in 1960 who bought it and realised it did have potential for tourism if the tourism would come. They were just on the cusp. The tourism did come to Estdale and they did manage to make it work by hook or by crook. I mean, I think once, a bit like Fisher Ground, for a while it was very questionable whether it would survive, but it did, and I'm glad it did. It's still there and it's doing a great job. People love it. One of the great community events of the Valley, and one we associate Estdale with, is the Estdale Show, which in its early days was at Brother Ilkeld, or as many locals used to call it, Butterickett. <laughs> it's now moved on. Can you tell us some memories of that show? It was very busy in our house because the children all did paintings, did handwriting, they did vegetable animals, and it was all very competitive, not just with our children, but with all the children in the valley, and especially the mums too, because they made cakes, they made scones, they made all sorts of lovely, gorgeous things, and it was a real community event. Everybody went with their children, with their mums, and... The dads usually would show in sheep and doing all that sort of thing. But the ladies and the children were just having a ball. If you got first prize, you got a, a red ticket. If you got a second prize, you got a blue ticket. And then you sometimes got the whole trophy. And that was just wonderful. When it came to hound trailing, Ian, you were very successful, I gather. Uh, that first show, Jeff and I were, um, were talking to a kid that I used to teach. He was in sixth form in one of my maths groups. And he was involved in the hound trailing on the betting side. He didn't run the betting thing himself, but he was the runner for it. And um, we thought we'd have a bet, so we asked Edward who we should bet on, and he told us, I can't remember the name of the dog, but uh, Dominatrix or something like that. We each put a pound on uh, on this, this animal to come in, and I thought, well, Ed should know what he's talking about, so surely it'll win. Well, it didn't. It was third. But a little bit later, he came up with a big grin and gave us five pounds each and uh, said, I put it on without the first two because they were always going to win anyway, but you can run without two dogs or three dogs, and your dog won without those two. So there we are. That was a nice start to our hound trailing experience. Hound trailing itself is amazing. There's all these dogs, 20, 30, 40 dogs, and they're all straining at the bit to get away and go and follow the people who've laid the scent. And they go hammering off over the walls, over the fences. It's a magnificent sight. And then about 
I don't know, does it take them about half an hour to get round a 10-mile course, something like that? And then they're, they're coming back it's in. Miles an hour, oh, it's fast, they're fast. They're coming back in and there's a, such a hullabaloo and people banging their plates and shouting their names. It's a magnificent sight as these hounds all come in, slavering and uh, one after another to a good big plate of lights and, uh, and their commendation. It's what, good to what see. Lights, liver and things like that that they're served up with. When you come into a valley like this, you obviously establish relationships with some really old characters. And old Tom Fisher, can you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah, we're really lucky to meet old Tom. Ever keen to expand the farm, we went to rent some land from Tom, 10 acres further down the valley. Tom was a magnificent old company. He went back years before the war. Uh, he'd been what we call travelling tentire, and I looked at him in suspense. What on earth is travelling tentire mean? And what he meant was travelling a stallion. You'd take a stallion round all the farms because people had mares and geldings to work, but they didn't keep their own stallions. So every time a mare needed to be served, he had to take his stallion to them. So he would walk around many, many miles with his stallion, just walking there and walking back. A bit later in his life, he worked for the county council and he was a steamroller man, and I do mean a steamroller. He would uh, have to get up about five o'clock in the morning to get up steam on his steamroller before all the other guys came and then roll the, the tarmac that they were putting out and everything. Tom was wonderful. He, he would look me in the eye and say, now listen, mister, I was going to tell you, and he would tell me all sorts of lore about the whole place. He was, he was very good value. I liked old Tom. That was a fascinating insight to local life, but um, it'd be lovely to share with you the joy of walking upstream by going over that lovely suspension bridge and enjoying the magic of the River Esk. This is particularly wonderful. We've come along the path in the bar of the trees, passing Red Bank, the ruin of a farmhouse with the bare base of the house. We've come along a little bit further, evidence of uh, wild garlic, ransoms and uh, pig nut. And we've come out beside a lovely pool, a broad stretch of the river, not too deep. And on a day like today, so inviting. Did you ever dip in here, Jen? I certainly did. I used to bring the children We'd come along here and we'd cross over the river to the far side and further up is a lovely pool called Turn Dub, which is deep enough to jump in, swim in. There's a sort of hollowed out rock slide and you'd sit on the top of that and just whoosh down into the water and disturb trout. There was lots of really lovely big trout in there as well. It was a marvellous place to come. You could spend the whole afternoon with a picnic and lounging and talking and sharing secrets. So what diversity of wildlife have you observed here? I've seen deer, plenty of deer. Roe deer, that would be? Yes, roe deer. Fox, squirrels, red ones, beautiful birds. Did once see a kingfisher, but only the once. Owls, yes. We had an owl at Fisher Ground, a barn owl. Uh, that was a beautiful sight at night, seeing that taking off. That was lovely. I won't say it was a real hoot. <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> Going back to the time when you were really active on the farm, come the summer, and I mean when summer really advanced into a hay time, can you remember memories of that? And when would that be in this nick of the woods? 
all too vividly as trouble always was trying to get four days together when it was dry and knowing that there were going to be four days together because weather forecasts weren't as good as they are now it was difficult to be honest you'd mow with a, a hopeful heart and turn for a couple of days and as long as the weather held okay you could make your hay and it was fine but if it didn't hold then you had to start again and turn it out again and every time you did this it was getting poorer and poorer stuff that you were making yeah, it was great fun, but it was hard work. And uh, look, the muscles on Jennifer, you can see Aww. that uh, she was lifting bales and putting them on the trailer and then we will put them in the barn and so on. One year we made an awful lot of bales because we had 20 acres down in Hurton as well. And we made 3,000 bales down there that had to come home. And that was a lot of journeys with uh, a trailer and, uh, and the Land Rover because the tractor was too slow. So you were doing this July, August? It depended on the weather. Sometimes it was September. Oh. I mean, the trouble is on these fell farms that the, the sheep are down lambing until the end of May, so you don't even shut the sheep fields up until the beginning of June. And then by the mid-July, that's really when the rains start in this part of the world. So it, it, if you can get it before mid-July, great, but you don't get very much. If you leave it later than that, you get a lot of stuff, but it can be very hard work getting it. Um, you get very fungusy, musty. Very fungusy and worth very little at the end of it, to be honest. Do you remember what revolutionised hay time? Vividly, 1985, big bale silage. The fell farmer's salvation, to be honest, because you only need two days for big bale silage. You cut it one day early in the morning, maybe. You turn it around a couple of times, and a couple of times the next day, and then you put it into these big round bales that you see everywhere. Cover it in plastic, and the air doesn't get in, so it doesn't rot. And it's beautiful stuff, and it, it has absolutely revolutionised fell farming, I think. It pickles the grass. Well, you get it's... silage out of it, but it's silage that you can feed to sheep because it's not compacted, it's nice and loose, and uh, it's great stuff, great stuff. One of the things that uh, are instinctive in a farming setting like this is the year-round cycle of shepherding and uh, the Herdwick sheep. Now, can you describe the full year? Because that's something that, throughout the time you were farming here, was a continuum. Yeah, surely. For me, the farming year starts on the 25th of March, which is Lady Day, and used to be New Year's Day. So lambing time is the first thing in April, from about the 20th of April onwards. They're in until the end of May, and they go out on the fell. Before they go, you have to dip the ewes, otherwise they're going to get struck by blowflies and everything else and hopefully dip the lambs as well so that they don't get struck. They stay out there until clipping time, which is somewhere in July. So you bring them all in again in July, which is a big gather, and bring them all in. Would there be other farmers helping you? Not in our day, no. And we were small anyway, so Michael would give us a hand next door, and I would go and gather with him maybe a bit. But the days of boon clipping and things had long gone. And then they would go back on the fell until September... September you'd bring them down again and be taking the lambs off the ewes, that's called spaining. And then the sheep would go back again for another couple of months. The lambs would stay down, obviously. you bring them back down again for tup time, um, sometime mid-November. And again, every time they were down, they'd be dozed for worms and for fluke and all those nasty things that um, get onto sheep. The yeah. sheep would go back to the fell after tupping time and try to live through the winter. As the years went on, we would feed them more and more. At first there was this theory that you shouldn't feed your sheep on the fell because they should survive there. 
but it became obvious that actually they wouldn't survive, or at least an awful lot would die. So we tended to let them come in to the intakes and fed them silage from probably Christmas time onwards until we would bring them in again for lambing time next April. If you go up on the fells today and wander around, you invariably find sheepfolds, quite a multitude. They actually functioned quite differently to what they do today. It saves a lot of migration of sheep. Well, it does that, but I bet the farmers would rather have brought them down and dipped them. The only problem was there were no dips in those days. There were no chemicals. Sheep were still getting struck by blowfly. So what those little pens are for was they would gather them in on the fell and what they called salve them, which is rubbing all sorts of stockum tar and things on them to keep the blowfly off. Um, sounds a hideous and long-term job, but that's what they did up on the fells there. I don't suppose they had any drenches or anything, so they wouldn't be dozing them. That's all they would be doing, I think. So one of the really revolutionary products was the dip. They saved an enormous number of sheep, but the trouble is, when you're dipping sheep, you are getting soaked with the same stuff yourself and also your helpers. started off with dildrin, which was pretty awful substance, really. It was outlawed. I think in the 60s, and then they came in with other ones. But in the nature of things, if it's going to kill parasites, it's not good for people either. We dipped with almost entirely with organophosphates, and I'm not sure that they did as much good either. I'm pretty certain that being pickled in organophosphates all day is not a good way to live. One of the more traumatic passages in your book is the mention of when, was it 42 sheep were mauled? Yeah, that was a very bad day indeed. Um, A visitor came down and said there were a lot of dead sheep on the fell and I went up to see what had happened and it turned out that a neighbour's dogs, a farming neighbour's dogs, had been rounding up on the fell and they'd rounded our sheep down to the fell wall where they got trapped and some of them were bitten and scarred and torn apart and a lot of them had simply died because they'd smothered. And to be honest, that was probably the end of the dream of farming as far as I was concerned. I think that broke something deep inside me. If you were to see yourself as a 20-year-old and now giving you the sage advice of what you've learned, would you have told him, don't bother with the farming? (laughs) That's an impossible question, isn't it? Um, I don't even recognise 20-year-old me, to be honest. I don't recognise 30-year-old me or even 40-year-old me. You change... You get older, you lose the energy. With all that energy and everything, it was great fun. I mean, let's not knock it. It was great fun, but I made an awful lot of mistakes. It wasn't big enough. It, it wasn't a big farm. It, wasn't, it was a small hole in, and needed to be recognised as that from the word go, and I didn't really recognise that. And the tourism was too attractive financially to ignore. But no, I wouldn't advise not doing it. We enjoyed it enormously didn't kill us so it's fine (laughs) well we're going to carry on further up the stream to talk about the church uh, and we're heading towards the Gerda Bridge I believe lovely little wander there Uh, through this woodland it's uh, predominantly conifers but very mature ones there's quite a diversity there's oak as well we've come along beside a wall and there's a gateway on the east side there's a conventional stone stoop 
And on the left-hand side is the remnants of something quite significant there, I think, in your terms, Ian. This is inspired by the Romans, as far as I can see. On the top of the wall, there's a huge stone with a hole bored underneath that a prong goes up into, and on the floor, there's another hole, and the gate oscillates on this thing. And this is exactly the sort of form of gateway that the Romans had up when the, when the Roman fort up as had not. And... I don't know of another valley that has these sort of gateways, so I formed the opinion that perhaps this was particular to Westdale or valleys like this. I know in, in Borrowdale, where I was brought up, the original form there was not a gate at all, but it was two large lumps of slate with holes bored into them. You just put bits of wood across from hole to hole, and that was your gate, and to open it, you had to take them out and put them to the side. So I, th I think each valley may have its own particular sort of gateway. The old gateways can tell you a lot about a valley. Quite. Well, it's the pivot hole, and this track we're on could have been the Roman road from Ravenglass to the Roman fort ahead of the valley. It's so, a straight line. Yeah, well, there you are. Hadrian was the ruler. He drew it here. OK, I'll go with that. We've come by the stepping stones, which, with the low water as it is today in the Esk, look very inviting and not very dangerous, but I have been past it when the body of water has been stupendous and you can't even see the top of the stones and it's been a tumult of water. Today it's completely calm and very reflective. And we've come on a little bit further beyond them, actually, rather than go straight over to St Catherine's, You've come upstream a little bit further and we've come to what is known as the Gerda Bridge, where I think I ought to ask you, Ian, to explain what the Gerda Bridge is all about. This was built by the Ratty because, um, contrary to everybody's expectation, the Ratty doesn't actually end at Dalegarth or even at Boot, which it also goes up to, but it came across here on a spur across this river by the Gerda Bridge, which, as you can see, are huge girders to carry every train, I guess. And it went a little bit further where there's another hematite mine as well. So it was all about the hematite, it was all about the iron ore, getting that, and this was obviously commercially used for some length of time. So the iron, which was very significant here, it was used throughout the Industrial Revolution and is very important, but there's a further link with Herbic sheep. There is, because it's very red, the iron ore here, the hematite. The story is, and I'm sure it's true, that the farmers used to mix it with oil and linseed oil and stuff like that to use partly as smit to mark the sheep, to give them that red mark that tells all the farmers whose it is, and partly as rudd to smear underneath the tubs so that you knew when ewes had been served. So, not dark, ruddy red, it's a lovely colour. There's a nice little passage in your book, Ian, about your escapades on the Gerda Bridge. I'm not sure I'm proud of it any longer, but uh, when the girls were very young um, and there was no footpath across, there were just the two girders, each of which is nine inches wide. Much against Jen's better judgment, I put a girl on my shoulders and carried her across to this side on the girder, came back across for the other one and carried her across as well. Jen refused to let me carry her across and she refused to go across as well. <laughs> so I had to carry them back again. <laughs> Very balanced man. Well, um, one of those things I prefer to forget, to be honest. <laughs> Returning to your story with the farming falling away in importance, you actually felt a new calling and you started training to be a non-stipendary minister. 
Could you tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah, in common with all rural parishes, the vicar was ending up with more and more churches, more and more parishes. Here there were four parishes with six churches, and I had always had a small hankering for the ministry, and this seemed to be a way that I could be a minister to some extent and still keep on farming here and still stay at Fisher Ground. So I did a, a three-year course with the Carlisle Diocesan Training Institute and came out at the end as an ordained vicar able to help. I mean, I never wanted a parish of my own, but it was good to be able to help and to be able to take funerals and weddings and baptise for your own friends and relations and all the parishioners around. Funerals? How did you cope with those? As long as it was someone who was had had a full life, it was fine. Obviously there were some that were much more difficult and the hardest of all were two children in the valley, youngsters, who died quite close together and their funerals were extremely difficult. The worst of all was a family who had been murdered in California but their grandmother was local to here and they were all brought back to be buried together and that was huge and very, very difficult indeed. So yeah, it's not easy and I was never terribly comfortable but I did my best with it. Can you talk a little bit about the actual process of being a minister in a rural parish like this? Apart from the services, by far the most important thing is visiting people, visiting people who are sick, visiting people who have been bereaved, visiting people in hospital, and all the, the joyful things as well, preparing for weddings, preparing for christenings. It was a hugely privileged position that I really didn't deserve, but I did my best to fill. You're able to go into anybody's house and you've got a role. One of my vicars called it just holding the space for people and that's probably as good a description as anything. You're holding the space where people can either laugh or cry or celebrate or whatever, but it needs someone at the front just holding that space. You show empathy and rapport wherever you can. Jen would say I saw no empathy and no rapport in my whole life, but I did try. Well, conclude the walk by heading towards the Church of St Catherine's, which is in the most idyllic setting, with the pink granite of its walls glowing in the late afternoon sun. Well, we were able to cross the Gerda Bridge without balancing and tumbling. Uh, We wandered back downstream... Uh, beside the beautiful pools in the Esk, and we arrived at St Catherine's Church. We've come into the churchyard, and we've looked back. I'm looking back to the southeast, and I can see Green Crag. Up to the north, I can see Estelle Moor leading to Boat Howe. But more significantly, we're in the churchyard, a lovely array of memorials, and we've come to one particularly. In your book, there's a chapter which you describe as Annus Herabilis. It starts off in that terrible time when foot and mouth struck and it had big impacts in the farming community. Foot and mouth in Cumbria was probably worse than Covid has been. It was an absolutely devastating time for all the farmers. And not only the farmers, the tourist industry as well was smitten by it. Suddenly nobody could move anywhere, farmers couldn't leave their farms even. I don't really have the words for it, I have the memory of it and it's a very painful memory indeed. My worst memory I think is trying to preach a sermon on the 25th of March, this famous Lady Day, which was also Mother's Day that year, 
and just breaking down because the whole pressure of the possibility of the whole Herdrick flock being wiped out on the fells because there's no fences between. The theory was, well, if he gets on the fells, where do you stop? Because um, they can go where they want. And there was one case over in, in the Duddon Valley, just three miles from us here. And at that point, it looked as though really the end had come for Herdrick fell farming. You know, this was only one small aspect of it. Obviously, other farms all over Cumbria, all over England, were suffering horrendously. But in this little valley that I was aware of, it was just a terrifying time. In the following year, 2002, your very good friend, Anne-Marie, became very ill. Can you tell us a little about that, Jen? Well, I'd already lost my mum from cancer, so... I knew what to expect, and I think I was the only member of the family who knew what to expect when Anne-Marie was diagnosed with cancer. And I knew how painful it was going to be, how horrible, emotionally, physically. And just trying to prepare the girls and the boy from it all was was quite difficult. Um, But we got through it. Uh, All the French family came over. And that in itself was quite a hard pressure to take because for Anne-Marie to die before her mother, her mother found it very, very hard. I'd known Anne-Marie all my life and it was like being married, I suppose, and losing somebody that you loved very much. And we're standing beside the lovely cross, Anne-Marie's grave, 1948-2002. Can you describe what it says there? Anne-Marie Wake, 1948-2002, who travelled with us and enriched our lives with her love and compassion. She lives in the mystery of God. So, Jen, with the utter horrors of foot and mouth and the appalling loss of Anne-Marie, having been here for 25 years, your mind turned back to where your own personal roots were in Keswick. Yes, that's true. I'd always loved Keswick. Keswick was place where I'd been very, very happy. We both felt it was time for a change, a change of lifestyle, a change of uh, just doing something that was different. And the heart had gone out of Fisher Ground. And for you, Ian, did the Fisher Ground era feel like it was coming to a genuine end? Oh, very definitely. I mean, all the children had left home by then. Anne-Marie had died. Jeff was distraught because he was now a widow. There didn't really seem any way forwards at Fisher Ground. We lasted another couple of years, topping and tailing, if you like, the place, and trying to get everything ship-shape and to be saleable. But from then on, we were on our way. Well, with the sun coming out as it has now at this moment, the church is beautifully lit up. It's probably a good moment to make our way there for a little bit more of an upbeat and happier moment. Well, we've come inside St Catherine's Church, Jen, Ian and myself, and looking at that pulpit over there causes me to say, Ian, can you describe this? You'll have given many sermons from there. It's a lovely old church, isn't it? It really is. It's on a site that must have been here for many hundreds of years. I think this church itself is probably about 150 years old, 
But the pews are beautiful. I think they're oak, actually. I think they're oak and the pulpit as well. And all the stained glass around with the stories from the Bible. On the windowsill there, it has the old bell, which sadly was cracked, but they have a new one which isn't cracked now, so that's fine. And that's sat there. Well, of all the many services you will have conducted, perhaps the most significant, the most happy and merry and rewarding of all was when you conducted the marriage of your lovely daughter, Sally, here. That was a a truly magnificent moment and it's the last chapter of the book and deservedly so. It's an amazing privilege to be able to do that for your daughter. Jen um, gave her away in my place since I couldn't both give her away and marry her so Jennifer did that and it was a a truly memorable day. Sadly it poured down (laughs) and uh, Sally had decided that she wanted to come up in style in Jen's uh, open top car, the Astra, and go back in even more style sitting on a hay bale on the trailer behind the tractor. Well that was fine, coming up was okay because they could put the roof up on the car but going back there was no way she could go back down the valley with the pouring rain in all that glorious uh, costume. So they went down in the car and I went down on the tractor hooping like an idiot as I went down Bastarati and there was a train load of people going down wondering what on earth this begarbed man was doing sitting on a tractor and trailer whooping his way down in the valley in the pouring rain. But it was great fun. It was great oh, fun. Fantastic. And a very fitting end, I think, to the book. Oh, absolutely. What a thrill. Jen, turning to you, you were both at Fisher Ground for, in total, 28 years. That's quite a span of years. It has a tremendous impact on your lives. What are your abiding memories? Most of them were really great fun, and I wouldn't change it for anything. I always wanted to marry a farmer, and I did. I always wanted to have lots of children, and I did. And it was just an unbelievable experience, and one I look back on with great love and affection. journey's end and we are just outside this fabulous church i reminded again of the granite here Mark. we were talking about it earlier on and um, actually ian mentioned it's very well known locally for this pink rose granite and it's absolutely beautiful this it's church, influenced it? by the hematite presumably yeah, this has got to be one of the most beautifully sited churchyards in the lake district the swallows sweeping over us Late afternoon now, we've got a bit of cloud, which is very welcome, I have to say. It's nice and cool out here. What a lovely podcast, what a great story. I think you knew bits of it. Great story, yeah. I've got a slight link to it, because I'd had the temerity to tell my dad, we ought to buy Fisher Ground, but fortunately we didn't. It's glorious to know that for all the fraughtness of it, it gave so much to them, and it has given a great deal to the valley into the future as well, because that campsite still functions dynamically and in an age when people need more economic accommodation you can't beat a well-serviced campsite coming to the end of the podcast a few recommendations then firstly the book upon which this podcast was based and there's an awful lot more stories within that book mark i've recommended it to so many people the book is ian hall fisher ground living the dream 
buy local from any of our fabulous uh, independent bookshops up here. Other books that Ian's got, he's got eight different titles out and they're all really interesting. He's written about Thornithwaite, the farm that he uh, grew up on. Um, and he's also most recently done two really interesting titles about Thirlmere and yes. about the flooding of that valley. Yeah, Countess Ossolinsky. Yeah. What, what was that story about? Have you seen that one? Yeah, Countess Ossolinsky was an incredible woman in that valley before the time of the flooding, and she really held out against Manchester Corporation at the time to effectively make an awful lot of money. But the question is, was she trying to conserve the valley as well? But we're going to try and get in onto a future podcast about that. And he's got another title about Thirlmere, Thirlmere Before the Dam, which does as it says, and it's got some really interesting illustrations photos but also best of all i think is these photographic recreations of what the valley looked like before manchester corporation did its deeds so we're recommending all of those uh, titles from ian in terms of making some money for ourselves which is equally important <laughs> we should mention the ambleside walking companion just out you yes. can buy that from www.countrystride.co.uk along with other country stride publications you can support us for as little as £2 a month on Patreon. Very easy to sign up. You can find out more about that at www.countrystride.co.uk. Regular housekeeping, Mark. We are on social media. Yes. Countrystride 1 on Facebook and Twitter. Very good. And this is episode number... 104. For 103 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. I think that's us signing off, isn't it, after this lovely, lovely day uh, in Estelle. And we will see you again on the next Country Stride.